Well, as most of you know, we've been going through this summer through the Lord's Prayer, and last week we, we finished it, and we... Um, been learning really how to pray from Jesus. And as we were discussing this early, actually it was like last spring, a group of us got together and we, we talked about how to bring this to our community. And uh, in on that conversation was Jason Meidel. And he shared with us just briefly how the Lord's Prayer had been a significant part of his journey. And so we asked him if he'd share a bit of his story. And uh, that was a long ways away, Jason. You thought that day would never come, but it's here now. And I'm just so thankful that Jason's going to come and share Come on up, Jason. I'm praying for you. Jason has been a member of our community for a few years now, and he's been chairing our leadership uh, committee the last uh, the last year or so. And uh, we're just very thankful for him and for his his commitment to Jesus, his commitment to our community in so many ways, the way you serve us, and uh, for his family, his kids. And let me just pray for you as you share with us, Jason. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work that is so evident in our lives, the way that you draw us the way that you chase after us, the way that you never let us go. And I, I just thank you so much for Jason and for his, um, his life, his testimony, the gift he is to us and to so many. And I just pray that you bless him now as he shares his story with us of your work in his life. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I haven't actually used this mic before, so I've got to try to see if it works. So. Everyone can hear me? We're good? Okay, I'm going to get some water first. So as Tom said, my name's Jason, Jason Meidel. I've been attending this church here a couple years, two or three years, somewhere in there. Uh, and I've been a member of the leadership team for the past two years, going into my second year right now. I'm just going to get my notes up here. I know we don't use notes, but today I'm going to. So as Tom said, we've been talking about the Lord's Prayer all summer. Um, for those of you who maybe haven't been here or you've just kind of Miss a lot of summer, a lot of Sundays like I have because of camping, family, stuff like that. What we've been doing is different people have been taking different parts of the Lord pray, Lord's Prayer and then pick, kind of taking it apart and seeing how we can apply it to our own lives. So it's been a really, for me, it's been a really amazing time. I've missed some, but I've been able to catch the podcasts online. And, and I've found that I've applied a lot of what I've heard to my own personal prayer life. So like Tom said, though, this morning, we're going to take a bit of a detour so how, from how we've been looking at this prayer. Um, like Tom said as well, Tom took my whole introduction away from me, so that's okay. So Tom had asked me a few months past whether I wanted to take a Sunday and speak on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, at that time, I immediately said yes, not knowing what I was going to talk about whatsoever. And as I spent some more time in prayer and in reflection, I realized that God was, was telling me to speak on his prayer and how it's always been and still is an active part of my own personal life. So this morning, as the bulletin says, I'm going to share with you my story. My wife's been asking me the last couple of days, are you nervous? Are you nervous? How are you doing? I'm like, well, no, only when you ask me that am I getting nervous. But <laughs> the reality is I'm not nervous about speaking. I'm nervous about opening myself up completely. I've shared my testimony many times in the past, um, but I've always just kind of breezed over it. I've just kind of shared highlights. I've never actually gone into my story. Um, I did that as a way to protect myself from what I thought people, how people would judge me from my past. So this morning, God's really uh, spoke to me to say, yeah, guess what? You're doing the other thing today. So, so today I'm going to share my story. Um, and I want to start off with a piece of scripture that really kind of speaks to it. It's 1 Peter 3.15. But it says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So today I share with you my story with gentleness and respect. 
So let's start with my early years. So from, the birth, from birth to the age of five, uh, my life could be described as not so ideal. My mother was a drug addict. My father was an addict as well as an abuser. So my earliest memories of my own father are that of a man who abused me physically and sexually. At this point in my life, I didn't know or understand what love was. I do remember, I have, I have a few very vivid memories from that time. You think you don't remember stuff before five, but I think when you have traumatic experiences, you definitely do. And then I know people remember other things too as well. But. So my most vivid memory is uh, the night before my brother and I were taken away. We were taken by, away by the RCMP and from social services, and this was in uh, Surrey, B.C. So at the time, my father was in a rage. He was beating my mother, and I just remember hearing screams, glass breaking. And I was under the table shielding my little brother underneath me. Uh, he was two, I would have been four, no, five. No, he was, would have been one, actually. So I was shielding him. Um, at the age of four, I already knew what was going to happen next. I knew that I was going to take a beating, but at least it was me and not my brother taking it. So at the age of four, I, at that time, I was taken away the next day, actually, from my family, and I was placed in foster care, which also was not the most ideal situation for me. Now, important thing for me, and I've, this has taken me a long time to realize, is that at that time, at that young age, I already established that fear and love, to me at that time, were the exact same thing. There is no difference between the two. And all, already at that age, I knew complete and utter abandonment. And really, my earthly father had failed me right from the starting gate. So at the age of five, I was adopted along with my brother. My parents actually came. They just wanted one boy. They found out I had a brother. And despite not wanting to, they took both of us, which is a blessing. Um, so I was adopted to an amazing family who I am blessed to call my own to this very day. I can tell you, though, that it wasn't an easy go at the time for my new family. Uh, even at five, I acted out. I tried everything in the book to get sent back to where I'd come from. And the reason I did this was because I couldn't understand, I couldn't fathom how this new family or why they were showering me with what I didn't know at the time was love. So I did everything. I would stand downstairs. I would scream for hours. I'm five years old. I'm not a baby. I'm screaming for hours. I'm peeing myself. I'm doing everything. I'm spitting up my food. I'm throwing food across the room. But my parents stood by me, and they never sent me back. So I was good. So, like Tom said, the Lord's Prayer has always been a part of my life. I first heard it in a Awana club. Um, I was made to memorize it. Didn't know why I was memorizing it or what it actually meant, but I knew that if I memorized it, I got a prize or something, so I memorized it. So that was my first kind of uh, experience with the Lord's Prayer, and it's something that stuck with me throughout my life. So as I made my way through my childhood and into my teenage years, I actually was a pretty well-behaved kid. People would say I was quiet, I studied, I went to school, I didn't party and do anything. I was just all around a good kid, from the outside, that is. So I I attended, I went to school regularly, I attended church, I went to Bible camp, I worked as a Bible camp counselor when I was 15 to 17. Um, I pretty much immersed myself in this new life that I, I called my own. Now my first experience with my Heavenly Father's love came when I was 10 years old. I had accepted Christ at camp. And I, I felt this love surround me that at that time I didn't understand, but looking back I understand that as the Father's love just embracing me at that time. But bes- despite all these appearances, I pretty much, had, I put on, it's like putting on a new set of clothes with your dirty clothes underneath. So from the outside it looked pretty good, from the inside though I was just a mess in shambles. That's my daughter, you can hear her in there. <laughs> so we're going to move to my teenage years. So teenage years being 18. 17, 18, I graduated when I was 17 years old. 
So I found myself at university. I went straight from, straight from high school straight to university. Uh, and it was there that I think I, I thought I found myself. Here I was at university. I could be my own person, do whatever I wanted. This is when I first tried beer. you think I would have tried beer long before that, but I had never had. So I was 18 years old when I tried beer for the first time. To me, it, it was this really good bubbly golden beverage that really just helped me to, I felt it helped me to be somebody different. So it was a game changer for me. So when I drank it, I became somebody completely else. All of a sudden, I wasn't that quiet kid anymore. I was now fun party Jay. So I had a new set of clothes now. So I started working at the pub, first as a bouncer. I was 18 years old. I couldn't bartend yet, so as soon as I turned 19, I started bartending at the university pub. And this started my decade-long career as a hospitality worker. I worked my way through various restaurants, nightclubs, bars, all in Kamloops. But all the time, I truly never felt like I actually belonged. So at that time, I abandoned church because it didn't really fit into my new lifestyle. I thought I'd abandoned God. I thought God had abandoned me. I was wrong on both accounts. So at that point, in my early 20s, I started living a life of late-night parties. A continuous cycle of pretty much work, party, sleep. I pretty much quit school and started working in the bars full-time because it's just I made way more money than anyone should. And I spent it all. So all through this time, though, I found that alcohol helped me to keep those feelings that I had kept up stay locked up. I could push those feelings of abandonment, fear, pain, and just trauma at bay with every drink that I took. But soon drinking just wasn't enough. Drinking didn't cover that pain anymore. It wasn't enough to keep that at bay. So I moved to drugs. I tried various different drugs in my 20s, um, but in the end it was cocaine that became pretty much my new set of clothing that I used. So at the age of 20, I already had had enough. I had felt that my life was nothing like it should have been. And I remember on the way to work early in the morning, I drove my car off the road down a steep 100-foot embankment. And my intention, at the, my intention at the time was just to end it all. I was done. So my car sped off the highway over the bank, and it proceeded to flip three times, uh, landing on its roof. And if you had looked at the passenger side of the car, it looked like crumpled tissue paper. Never seen metal do that, but apparently it can do that. So. Um, miraculously, I was unhurt. I was mad because I was still seatbelted in and I couldn't get out of the car because the windows were all, there were power windows and they didn't open. So the only injury that I sustained from that was I had to use a, a, a mug in my car and smash the window so I could crawl out of the car. And then I ended up walking five kilometers to the hospital. And so even though at that time I didn't recognize it, I see now this is my first experience of God having his hand of protection over me. Even when I had my, turned my back to him. So after recovering from my attempt at death, my parents recognized that I needed help. So they took me to Wagner Hills in Langley, which is a Christian-based recovery program. I'm going to go in a little later. I'll explain kind of what Wagner Hills is. And so for those who are not sure, I'll, they're our associate with ARC as well. So this was my first attempt at rehab. I lasted four days, and I was gone from there. The reason I only lasted four days because was my, my bunkmate at the time was an East Indian fellow. He was there. He was court-ordered to be there. He was up on drug charges, weapon charges, and trafficking. So in my mind, I thought, There's no, I'm nothing like this guy at all. I, don't need, I just have a small party problem. So I can just leave because I don't need this help. So I left. Uh, I went back to Kamloops. I continued to live in that lifestyle that I had chosen to live in. Uh, I still drank. I still used cocaine. 
I started work, continued working at the various bars and nightclubs. I worked my way through pretty much every restaurant, every nightclub, every bar in Kamloops. Uh, I started to deal drugs in my early 20s, as this seemed the best choice for me to do, as at that time I was using so much that it only made sense that I might as well sell some drugs to make my habit affordable. I wasn't a very good drug dealer at all. So my roommate and I at the time, we both dealt drugs together. Then at that time, we got our supply from the local Hells Angels. And at that, this got to be a little too much for me, and I ended up stepping back and saying, enough's enough. I'm just going to use drugs. I don't want to sell drugs. It's just way too much for me to be involved in. So I guess I had a little bit of common sense at that time. Uh, I still used heavily, but at least I wasn't dealing anymore. At least that's what I justified to myself. I remember to this day I received a call from my old supplier, one of the Hells Angels who was in Kamloops there, and he invited me to lunch at Boston Pizza. This wasn't exactly an invitation. It was more of a summonings. It wasn't like I got a choice. So I went for lunch. I remember walking into Boston Pizza at lunchtime. I sat down with him at a table. We're surrounded by families. We're surrounded by people going about their business. And he sat me down to tell me that my roommate, who I still live with at the time, had picked up a large amount of cocaine the week before, and he used me as his reference. So he wasn't able to, he, was, he couldn't afford to get the drugs on his own, so he asked, he used my name, because my name still was technically, I guess, good at that time, and my name was enough to get him the, the amount that he wanted. But now he hadn't, pay, he hadn't paid up, and he wasn't answering his phone calls anymore. So it came down to that it was my responsibility now to pay that amount back, and it was need to be paid back pretty much within a couple of days. So there was no, I didn't really have any room to bargain here. I didn't, even though it wasn't me, I had no choice. It was me, my, my responsibility to pay that. So I actually went home with the intention of confronting my roommate, uh, but he was already gone. He already heard who I talked to, and he had already skipped town already. So this is another time when I, I really know, looking back, that God had my back, because I don't know how I got the money. I don't know. The money just came in somehow. And I, it was just, looking back, it was miraculous. Um, so I remember him saying to me, it's not a matter, if I don't come back, there's going to be some things that are going to happen. And he wasn't joking. So I was able to pay him back, and like I said, God had my back, and even in my worst of times. So, we're making sense. I moved out of the place I was living in. And then after a couple more years of battling my drug abuse, I decided that I needed to, a geographical change. I needed to leave Kamloops. I thought if I left Kamloops, I would get away from it all. So I actually, um, my best friend Shane, who was the rock in my life through all my 20s, he helped me to get uh, work in Bread Creek at an Easter Seals camp where I had volunteered for three or four summers previously. And so I went there and I got hired on as a ropes and rec coordinator. And so this was the first time in a really long time that I was drug-free. I spent all summer and well into the fall just working and serving others. I found this peace in just serving others. While there, I met an Australian girl who was also working at the Easter Seals camp. We hit it off and we started dating. So, of course, what did I do? I decided that if I'm doing the geographical change, I might as well keep on going. So I moved to Australia um, with the intention of staying there for at least a year. And then my idea was to meet up with my new girlfriend and to work there. So in 2007, I moved to Melbourne, Australia. My intention at the time was to stay there for one year, but I actually ended up there for four years. And upon arriving in Melbourne, I quickly found that the only job that I was qualified to do was to work in the hospitality industry. This was the only real skill set I had. So right away, I found myself work as a general manager of a trendy restaurant right down the water, uh, where I was there for almost a year. 
I still stayed away from drugs, um, but I started drinking quite heavily. From the restaurant on the water, I moved to a, different, a couple different places before ending up as the bar manager at a new nightclub right in the city. It was at this new nightclub that I started to use cocaine again. And at first, I justified it as a reason. The reason I justified it was that I need to stay up for late hours. I work 12 to 15-hour days, so I might as well give myself a pickup. And also because of the type of uh, the club that I worked at was one that definitely worked on the shady end of the business spectrum. So at that time, uh, and remember what I said before, I was never a good drug dealer. I just sucked at it. It's a good thing to suck at. But so I started dealing again because a lot of drugs got moved to the doors of my club as well as the other clubs in the group. So at first, at first I just used the drugs, then I moved into dealing. Um, I became the middle guy for a variety of different underworld types, you can call them. Being the smart guy I was, I decided I'd work both sides of the fence. So I, I wasn't satisfied selling drugs for one group, I sold drugs for three different groups, all involved within the uh, Melbourne Mafia at the time. So at this time, I, I was so far gone that I can honestly say that it was just a blur. I, I worked, partied, dealt, and I occasionally slept. Now, this is where, not necessarily the Lord's Prayer, but prayer is such an amazing thing and has, has and still is an amazing thing in my life. There's various incidents during my time in Melbourne where my life was literally hanging by a thread. How I walked away from various situations um, alive still astounds me to this very day. I've spoken to my parents, and in particular my mother, in great detail as to the events, and we're pretty close now. We talk about everything, um, and it's pretty amazing. I remember talking to her and sharing with her these times, and and uh, and the aha light bulb going in her head, going, you know what? That was the time exactly that I got called to pray for you. So there's numerous situations. My mom was woken up in the middle of the night just with this urge to pray for her son, who hadn't really talked to her for a while either. So that's pretty awesome to know that God had my back even then, still then. So prayer is really powerful. So at this point in my life, to say that I was in over my head was probably a really, that's an understatement. I was in a rock and a heart. I was done. Um, the final straw came when I found myself owing, like I said, I was a very bad drug dealer. I did all my drugs. I didn't really sell them very well. I, uh, I owed a very large amount of money to a few different people. And I absolutely had no way to pay it at all. So in my drug field haze, I made the only decision that at that time I felt that I had. I knew without a doubt that if I stayed, uh, that I was dead. But worse than that, still this day worse than that, was if I stayed, then the people that I, that I, I cared about, my girlfriend, her family, my friends, and people I worked with would also be at risk. So I chose to run. So on my last shift at my nightclub, I, I took enough money to get me out of the country and to get a new start or what I thought was a new start in Asia. I got into a cab in the middle of summer wearing a trench coat. So I looked pretty funny. And the reason I had the trench coat is I had stuff full of money, all small bills. I got to the airport, and I paid for a flight to Hong Kong in cash. Right there, there's no way I should have left that country. Um, all those cards are stacked against me. But somehow I was able to. I left, I left the country. I flew to Hong Kong. From Hong Kong, I made my way to Macau, and then eventually I made my way to Thailand. To this day, I remember I called my best friend Shane and to tell him that I was, in, I was on Khao San Road sitting there and I called him on my Australian cell phone and I said to him, Shane, I'm not in Australia anymore. A lot of stuff went down. There's no way I'm coming home. I'm going to destroy my SIM card after this. 
And I still smile because when I said that to him, he says, Jay, I love you, but for my sake, call your mom first before you destroy your SIM card. So I did. I destroyed my, I called my parents. I destroyed my SIM card. I destroyed my phone. And so at this point in my life, I also had decided that I was going to stay in Thailand for the rest of my life. I decided that I had nothing left. I destroyed everything that I ever had. I'd hurt so many people in my life, and anyone that I was close to, I had either hurt or, yeah. So I was in Thailand for almost a year before my older sister convinced me that it was time to come home. It took a lot of convincing, but eventually I decided, yep, I was done with Thailand. I remember flying home to Vancouver with a single backpack, no wallet, just my passport, and one sandal. My sandal broke when I got off the airplane, so I was walking, hobbling along the, in the airport there. So in total, I had been out of the country for almost five years. And as I entered customs in Vancouver, lo and behold, I was detained. Not surprising. So I was pulled aside, and I was given the ninth degree by the uh, customs officer. So I decided I was going to tell him everything. So I told him everything from the start to the finish, why I was where I was. I didn't leave anything out. The officer decided that my story was just too unbelievable, that the only, op- only thing that must be happening is that I must be smuggling drugs. So I got taken to another area of the uh, customs in Vancouver there. They brought a supervisor in. I, I, re- I told my story again. They continued to disbelieve me. I didn't have any drugs with me. I wasn't smuggling drugs. I wasn't that dumb at that time. I was detained, I was strip searched, I was given the night, it was, it was a couple hour ordeal. Eventually they let me go because there was no reason they could hold me. So I returned home to Kamloops, um, I moved in with my sister, which is a little bit, uh, you know, disheartening when you're 28 years old, 29, and you're moving back to your sister because you have nothing left. And I got a job at Tim Hortons. When I got back, I had already decided that I was going to stay away from restaurants. I still hadn't kicked in, I, I hadn't kicked my habit yet. I just wanted to stay away from restaurants. So I thought if I worked at Tim Hortons a night shift, I'm golden. So I worked as a baker there. Um, and my, also my intention was that I was intending, I wanted to pay back the, the company that I had taken money from. Um, so I, now Tim Hortons probably wasn't the best choice to work at. It's not, but. So through different channels, I found out that the company wanted me to repay way more than that, w- that was actually taken. Um, I was beyond frustrated. There was absolutely no way that I would be able to pay back what they wanted when they wanted it. Um, I found out that I had no charges laid against me in Australia, and I've also numerous times I've spoken to RCMP here in Creston in Canada, and they can find no record of me ever being charged. Um, and the reason for this, I, I, I do know, is due to the, 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 the nature of the, the nightclubs I worked for, the type of business they were involved in as well. So at this, point, at this point, not surprisingly, I fell right back into my old habits, and I went right back to drugs as my way to cope with my utterly failed life. So I decided I moved out of my sister's house, and I moved into my best friend Shane's house. I got a job as a restaurant manager again, and I started back into all my old ways. This continued, continued on for me for about a year. Then one morning, something snapped. I don't know what it was. I, I know now it was God, but something just snapped inside me. I knew that I needed to change my life. I was done. I've been, this, I've been to this place a lot of times in my life before. 
So as I was flying high, literally high, and I decided it was time to call for help, I remembered Wagner Hills, a name I hadn't heard or hadn't spoken of in oh, upwards of almost 10 years it would have been. So I called the number in the morning, got the vo- voicemail, and they called me back when they opened, which I think was 8 o'clock the office manager got there. And now the reason that I chose Wagner Hills was because it was the hardest place I knew of and because I hated it so much the first time I went there. So I knew if I needed to change my life, I needed to go somewhere that I didn't want to go. And I, that's why I went there. Because when I went there the first time, I thought it was a cult. I thought they were crazy. I thought they were just nuts, and there's no way. So that's where I went back to. So it's funny. I came full circle. Now, I was the bunkmate that I had left because of. At 20, I left because of the guy next to me. I was nowhere as bad as him. And here I was at almost 30, and pretty much on par with who he was at that time. So I called Wagner Hills. I spoke to the intake office. And I secured myself a spot, but as long as I, can get in, I could get into a detox facility within the next day. So I remember to this day, and I still speak to the guy there, that he's not at the farm anymore. He's now living on his own. He's doing really well. He asked me, when was the last time that I did drugs? So at the time, I looked out at my coffee table. I had a big pile of cocaine, and I did it right then and there. And I said, right now, it's all gone. And I haven't touched cocaine since that night. So I checked myself into detox at the hospital in Kamloops where I stayed for four days. My employer at the time, he knew where I was and he was super supportive and he even wanted me to come back to my job when I had finished what I was doing. Um, It was a very surreal experience being in detox. I remember looking out the window of my room and I saw one of my servers from the restaurant I worked at dropping her daughter off at the daycare across the road. Not the most ideal place for a daycare, but... She had no idea that I was where I was. Actually, nobody did. And then something clicked. Uh, here I was at 30 years old, and my life was still meaningless. From detox, my sister drove me to Wagner Hills in Langley, where I started my journey to recovery. From the moment I got there, I decided that no matter how hard it was, no matter how much I hated it, I was going to stay and finish my year and get my life back together. The only book that I was allowed to read was the Bible. I wasn't allowed anything else. I wasn't allowed to talk to anyone for three months while there. So I read my Bible a few times through. (laughs) To say that my time there was the hardest thing that I did in my life would be an understatement. So as the drugs wore off, all those feelings I had bottled up for so very long just resurfaced. I no longer had my coping mechanism of drugs or alcohol to push them back under the surface. And here I was in a place where it seemed that everything that I was asked to do was geared towards bringing my feelings to light. Every situation I was put in, every rule that was there was to push me and make me angry to deal with my issues. So I went through a whole array of emotions those first three months. (laughs) Anger, anxiety, depression, it was a whole gambit. One of the things I was required to do every day was to journal. I was going to bring my journals, and if I brought them, they'd sit on here and be about that high. So that's a year's worth of journals. I still have them to this day. Um... I had to journal about my life. That day, I had to journal about all my childhood memories and work my way through my entire childhood. So instead, I've, I've, took a, I've taken a couple excerpts from those, from what I wrote. I didn't change anything. It's exactly what I wrote back then. So this was December 10th, 2010. This is my third day there. Today hasn't been the easiest day for me. Thoughts of leaving have crept into my head. Granted, these thoughts were brief, but they were still there. Old feelings have t- started to resurface, feelings that I have always covered with alcohol and drugs feelings of loneliness, 
anger at past wrongs, both done to me as well as wrongs that I have done to others. I find that when my day starts off not the best, the simple act of taking a moment to reflect on everything I have to gain from being here is enough to get me grounded again. I pray now not that God takes away my addiction, but rather that God continues to work through me and shows himself to me. My addiction is a byproduct of my my lack of relationship with my father. December 12th, this is day five. I came to Wagner Hills to find a way to deal with my addiction, but instead I find myself focusing on repairing my relationship with Jesus. I know that by repairing my relationship with Christ and that by delving deeper into my root issues, I will overcome my addiction. So the one thing that I found myself doing daily, pretty much every hour, was reciting the Lord's Prayer. It was the only scripture I'd memorized. It was scripture I knew. I said it over and over and over and over. It was a piece of scripture that got me through the worst of times there. you got to think, you got 30, 40 guys all stuck in a little bubble, all with really deep, deep issues. you got to, things happen. The other thing I did is I read the book of James over and over as well. That was another big one for me. So Wagner Hills, it became a pivotal part of my life, and it is still to this day. I spent the first 10 months on the farm. They call it the farm because it's actually a farm. Working on all parts of myself. I worked on my physical health, my spiritual health, and my mental health. My time at Wagner Hills was not without its challenges and trials. There's numerous ones. I chose the one that was the most, and to this day, the most memorable or most vivid. Um, I was four months into my program, and I was playing road hockey. We played hockey a lot because they thought it was a good way to get our anger out. Was. So I was playing road hockey, I was in the goal, and my parents showed up unannounced. My parents lived in Canada, which is about a four or five hour drive away from Langley, so you don't just show up unannounced for not a good reason. And I still wasn't allowed visitors at this point. I got pulled from my hockey game and I sat in the office with my parents and the director, Helmet, of Wagner Hills. My mom told me that my best friend Shane had had a major stroke. And then he was in ICU and he wasn't expected to make it. Four days earlier, Shane's older brother Jesse had also taken his own life by suicide. I was in complete and utter shock. Shane had been my rock throughout all my 20s. He was the complete opposite of who I was. He wasn't a drug user. He hardly drank at all. He had a steady job. He owned a house. Um, despite all my bad qualities, he always stuck by me and stood by me. And at that moment, I remembered with utter clarity the last time we had actually spoken. It was the day that I left for Wagner Hills. He gave me a big hug and simply said, you can do this and I love you. And that was the last time I spoke to him. I went back to my hockey game in a daze and the rest of my day was a complete blur. My parents came back the next day and I knew exactly why they were there. They told me that Shane had died. It was pouring rain that day, as it does in Langley quite often. It rains more than it's sunny. And my job was to work in the greenhouse, and we were moving plants from different greenhouses to different greenhouses back and forth. And I remember just doing that. I was in complete grief. I couldn't talk to anybody. And at that moment, I was yelling at God. I was screaming at God. I was angry. I cried. I broke down. I was so mad. I had so many questions, and at that time, I didn't have any answers. One thing that became very apparent to me at that very moment was that I was right where I was for a reason. I know even today, if I hadn't been where I was at Wagner Hills at that moment, then I wouldn't be up here speaking to you guys today. So God had me right where he needed me, 
I was at a moment in my life where I had to depend completely and utterly on him. Good place to be. So I was able to move forward, slowly, and I continued on my time at Wagner Hills. I'm going to interject here before I go further and kind of tell you what Wagner Hills is. Wagner Hills is a one-year Christian recovery program. It's a discipleship-based program based in Langley. They have a women's facility and a men's facility. Uh, men, men and women go there for various issues. It's an addictions, addictions issues, but it's not just drug and alcohol abuse. People go there have anger issues. I met a guy that was there because video games took up all his time. You go there because if there's anything in your life that's separating you from God and you can't get a handle on it, that's what it's there for. So that's why I was there. So in my 10th month, normally you're there for 12 months, my 10th month, um, where am I here? Oh, I, I skipped it. Nice. So in the 10th month, I was approached by Tony DeYoung. Um, he, was one of, he is and still is one of the leaders at the farm. He wanted to know if I wanted to come to this little town called Creston in the Kootenays. I had never heard of Creston. I think I've been there once as a young kid, but I had no idea where it was. Uh, at that time, I'd, already, I'd been praying the day before and telling God that whatever you want me to do, whatever you call me to do, I'll do it. And then he answered, be careful when you pray those answers, pray those prayers. So I, I said yes. So some other things that we did at Wagner Hills that I want to share is really important. Like I said, journaling. I think journaling is important for anybody. Um, for me, it was journaling my every day for a whole year. It was going through my childhood from my first memory all the way up to my, up to my 20s. Uh, we did intense counseling, one-on-one counseling, group counseling to deal with our root issues. We had a work program to keep our hands and our minds busy. Normally, addiction isn't, addiction isn't just a, a byproduct of someone's issues. You don't just become addicted because your life's fantastic, normally. Normally, there's a reason why you are doing what you're doing. And for me, it was my past. So in 2011, in the summer, I moved to Creston, where, along with Tony and a, a guy named Daniel, we helped start an addictions ministry here, alongside with Addictions Recovery Kootenays, uh, which, is, which is an already established organization in the valley. Upon arriving in Creston, we started to attend one of the local churches, where we immediately jumped in with both feet. We had one mandate at that time, it was just to serve and do what God wanted us to do. So my first opportunity to serve here in Creston was with building the new addition on New Life Church. So I remember that we did that for, I don't know, two or three weeks, maybe a month. It was, I, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. And I remember, I want to share a story too here. I remember in the middle of our work program there, a gentleman came up. His name is Dave, Dave Wedge. And he wanted to know if there's a group of guys who were willing to come help and put a new roof on his mom's house. Daniel and I, of course, put our hands right up. Yeah, bring us. We're going. So we went, and a, and a couple of things happened here. First thing is I met this, well, I'm going to say an older gentleman, an older guy, who was a new Christian who was super excited about his new relationship with Christ, and I remember being just, wow, this is awesome. Little did I know that I had just met my future father-in-law. And I remember a, a truck speeding up and a blonde girl running out crying and Fred running down, and little did I know I just saw my future wife as well. So from there, I, I helped out. Uh, I helped run the, uh, helped work in the church coffee shop. I helped run it for a while. I helped to run a young adults Bible study group. I moved. I helped against my better judgment to lead a monthly worship night, as well as I was involved with some of the youth ministry. 
And so it was through my youth, youth, ministry, youth young adults group, sorry, that I met my future wife, Crystal. So when I arrived in Crescent, one of the other things I also did to serve was I joined the Canyon Lister Fire Department, where I still serve to this day as an active member. And one of the things that I've been pretty good about doing is that, from the very beginning, is that I've always been very open and honest about my past with whoever asked me or who I felt needed to know my past. Now, you would think that with my past, doors would be shutting and closing all the time. But the opposite's kind of happened for me. My fire chief who's now my employer now in my full-time job, uh, I was open and honest with him about my past. And rather than close the door, it opened a door. And the fire department's been a, an amazing thing in my life. There's a piece of scripture, though, that kind of goes along with how God has a funny way of working through the worst of us. 1 Timothy 1, 15-16 says, This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they, too, can believe in him and receive eternal life. So we're winding up now, so I don't know how long we've been here. Oh, I didn't start my timer. Oh, I did. Oh, wow. Sorry. So I've... I've seen, normally when I've shared my testimony, I skip everything I just told you. I kind of brush on it and say I wasn't the best of guys, I did some bad things, and I moved into other stuff. So today I felt really led that I need to share that part of me with you, hoping that someone can see that there is hope. God can work through the amazing things through anybody. So myself, I've seen God work in so many amazing ways in my life since I, since I surrendered my life to him. And that started at Wagner Hills when I said, whatever it takes in 2012, I married my best friend, Crystal. Uh, at the time, everyone said we were crazy. We didn't actually date. We were just best friends for a year. We had coffees, went for walks with the dogs. That's all we did. And then we just got married. Now, this wasn't something that I had planned. But we were out uh, on Kootenai Lake, just outside of Boswell, sitting on a rock. And we were just talking. Just talking about life, talking about future. Just talking about We talked about everything. And then... Without kind of knowing what I said, I said, well, why don't we just get married? Without skipping a beat, she goes, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> I didn't have a ring. I didn't have a bull. I was on a rock. And we were married a few months later. We, we had a lot of people at that time who had no qualms telling us that there was no way that we were going to last, that we would be divorced within a year, that she was crazy to marry somebody like me. But I disagreed from the beginning. See, we've always kind of we've always decided that our marriage was a three-way deal. There's myself and Crystal, and then there's Jesus at the center. And now the first years of our marriage, they definitely weren't without our own struggles. Both Crystal and I, we faced opposition to our marriage from people that we would never have envisioned. There was some persecution. There was a lot of different things that happened with us, but we got through it because we had Jesus. We endured with, we endured, and with Jesus as our compass, we continue to this day to move forward. And God has blessed me more than I could ever imagine. I have a beautiful wife. I have two amazing children. I couldn't ask for better in-laws. Both Lynn and Fred accepted me from the very beginning, despite my not-so-good pedigree. So today, I stand before you as an example of what the grace of God can truly accomplish. Prayer 
has always been a part of my life, whether it was me praying or somebody praying for me. And the Lord's Prayer has always been a part of me. It has gotten me through some of the hardest times in my life. So many times I prayed that prayer without knowing what it meant just because it gave me comfort because I knew it was God's words. So this morning I just thank you so much for the privilege to stand up here today and to share with you my story. Jason. Thank you, Crystal. I know that you supported Jason through this, and thank you. I know that you were all encouraged by that. Uh, Wherever you are in life, whatever has been your story, I know that that has been a huge encouragement. So thank you, Jason, and thank you for your continued service here. Ends our service today. Let me just pray a blessing on you, and then we'll go to coffee time. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of of the Holy Spirit be with us all today as we go. And may each one of us know that it is the Lord who follows us, the Lord who goes ahead of us, and it's Jesus who will never let us go. Amen.